and I see Ozzy move, so I stick out my hand, and I say, Ozzy, I'm Tim Haggerty, and this is Mike. I also introduce our coworker, Mike Callahan. I, I said, and this is Mike, but I mistimed it. Ozzy wasn't quite done with that first conversation, <laughs> so he came around late, and all he heard me say was Mike with my arm extended, and he looks at me and says, hi, Mike. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so it was my fault. I sort of jumped the gun. Did you um, at all try to... No, no. To this day, if he ever, for some reason, remembers that he thinks my name is Mike, I, I did not we're just, we're just gonna dig go myself with out of that. Exactly. Just go <laughs> with it. Yeah. It's the boy, Bubba, let's come in through. Ella, clutch, flawless, can't be touched. It's your boy, Bubba, let's. Yeah, I need that hot take. I need the truth and everything that is not fake. So tell me who's the good. Welcome back, Bubba Bunch, to another episode of the Bubble at Sports Podcast. This is episode 157, and Tim, you didn't you didn't know this, but this marks the 100th episode since coming back to the podcast. Coming back from when? So I've been doing this podcast in reality for about four years. I remember doing the first one in my, uh, my friend's dorm room on a laptop, and uh, no one listened to it because it was like on a weird website because it was like the only thing available um and then i would take breaks on and off i mean literally it'd be like six months between every episode until i got to like episode 57 where last year like we're reaching the year mark of doing these podcasts but um episode 57 it was the cowboys first game of the regular season last year and i did an episode actually no it was on eli manning and I put it out to Spotify, Apple Podcasts. This was before YouTube, though. Um, but that's when I really considered myself, like, on top of the podcast. And I wanted to do that on a regular basis. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, as they say, save the best for 157th. Absolutely. It took, you, <laughs> it took you four years of having a podcast to call me. <laughs> uh, nevertheless, I'm happy to be here. Right. Better late than never. As, as some would say, along with 157th uh, uh, to, to have him on. But um, if, if anybody who's watching this or listening to this doesn't know the voice, which, by the way, you should, okay? But if you don't, the reason why I am repping the El Paso Diablos throwback made by the Chihuahuas, released just a few years ago, um, is the man, the voice of the El Paso Chihuahuas, and probably the best guest that I've ever had on this podcast, a celebrity, I would say. It is Tim Haggerty. Thank you. Uh, very nice of you. I think you're using celebrity pretty loosely. But, <laughs> um, yeah, working with you, you were the producer for some Chihuahuas games on ESPN El Paso. Back when you were in high school, right? Yes, I was were, uh, yeah. junior and senior because I was there for a couple years. Yeah, and I could tell if you wanted to do this, you definitely had a knack for it. Uh, you were agreeable, smooth on air for a high school kid when we did the between innings scoreboard updates. Um, easy to get along with, and you've probably already noticed this, but I, I think that's as crucial as anything. Mm -hmm. uh, there's people out there that are talented, but you know sometimes with that comes a little bit of an ego. 
but if you can be talented, skilled, but also likable, um, take a constructive critique well, which which you did. Uh, so good to see you have your own show, and I have no doubt you have bigger things uh, on the horizon if that's what you choose. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, uh, the series that I'm doing on this podcast where I'm bringing back a lot of people of my past who have helped me along the way and have molded me in some way to uh, have a successful podcast and a growing community that, that watches and listens to these. And I, I feel like you are a big part of that. You know, it, it's weird because it's not like we hung out. It's not like we were face to face every day. I, the only way of contact that I had with you was through text and that's only to send highlights and if we had any issues uh, or, you know, just a simple hello before the game and then we got it going. That, that was the case for probably two or three years. And um, even then, I just felt that I saw a lot of myself uh, when I was listening to you and, you know, knowing your story, I felt like this is kind of the same route. And uh, like you said, just being very um kind of like a sponge you know like taking your advice taking constructive criticism but we were just so like i guess the word is like respectable to each other because you know i respected you for what you did and you did it at a you still do at a very just elite level in my opinion like listening to you is just music to my ears uh, and you make the game so much better and that's exactly what i would like to do if I ever get to do commentary, whether it's baseball, football, soccer, um, that's what I want to do. I want to make the listener feel like they're at the game. And that's exactly how I felt every day listening to you being in that studio. It just felt like, you know, I, I didn't have to be at the game. I wanted to be at the game because it's a beautiful stadium for the El Paso Chihuahuas. I love the team. But something about your voice, I just felt like it was poetry in motion. It felt like. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And it's funny what you began those comments with uh, the relationship between a studio operator and a sports broadcaster. Uh, it's somebody that you speak to on a regular basis, depending on the situation between the team and the station, sometimes on a nightly basis. And many times you've never met the person. Uh, I remember years ago broadcasting for the AA team in Mobile, Alabama, and the way that arrangement was was it was the same same studio producer for every single game all 140 games and about labor day when the minor league season ends we sort of said to each other uh i don't know what you look like yeah. and yet i know all these things about you just in the small talk before you began the pregame show so it's a very unique relationship that a lot of other fields a lot of other professions don't have mm -hmm. somebody you speak to almost every day and yet you've never met them right and um, I think that speaks volume for the type of relationship and, and the friendship that we built is I didn't, you know, really, I saw pictures of you, of course, you didn't see pictures of me. I, I don't want to think about those pictures back then, but um, it wasn't until you came into the station one day and um, Sal told me that, that you were in the studio and I was ecstatic. I mean, I was so happy that I finally get to meet Tim and he finally gets to see me. And um, it really helped. But I felt like one day, right before a game, or it was sometime you mentioned Breaking Bad. It might have been when we were playing the uh, Albuquerque Isotopes, because it just makes sense. Um, and you asked me, he was like, are you a fan of Breaking Bad? And I was like, oh, 
oh, I'm a fan. And this was right <laughs> when I was getting to the show. I mean, I was binge watching every night. And from that point on, you told me that you, you met Bob Odenkirk, and I was yes. ecstatic. I mean, I was just involved. And you, you tell a story very nicely. So I was all hooked in. And from that point on, I was like, okay, we, we have something going here. And then I just felt more comfortable with you. You felt more comfortable with me. I, I will say that Tim has a very unique sense of humor. Some would say dry, but that is my favorite type of humor. So Tim and I got along very well. And I mean, I wish I, I would have done all 140 games. I wish I could have done, you know, more games than Sal. But, you know, I'm a, I was only the, the young kid. I was the young buck that got an opportunity. I'll take it. But do you remember that most of that time when I was doing those games, I would show up and for some reason I just had a bad feeling. And then you would text me or you would say, we're on a rain delay. I seem to have every <laughs> rain delay possible for the Chihuahuas. It didn't matter where it was. It didn't matter if it was El Paso, Fresno, OKC. It just felt like I always had the rain delay. <laughs> it's funny when you mentioned Fresno, the Chihuahuas were actually in Fresno for a rain out. I think that was 2015. So the math adds up of when you were doing mm -hmm. the games. And that is so rare there. Uh, that stadium has been there since 2003. And they've had something like five rainouts ever. <laughs> They're in the Central Valley of California. It's like a desert. So... Yeah, if you came to work and they were having a, a rain out in Fresno, then you might have had a curse against you. And, you know, for people listening that aren't familiar with the job, that's not a fun day because in baseball, for the most part, teams do not want to rain out games because then you have to make it up via a double header, mm -hmm. especially if there's a big crowd and there's tickets sold. You know, you want those people to leave after actually experiencing a game. So rain delays can get lengthy. Oh, for sure. Oh, those nights were were interesting. I think we both had those nights where we were just like, look, we're just tired. Let's just let's just finish this. <laughs> let's let's just get <laughs> off the air. Oh, but those were some of the best nights, I will say. You know, trying to pass by the time before the rain or before the game started, and if it even were to start, um, we we'd find ways to to get through it. Um, but so, do you? You, uh, you mentioned Breaking Bad. Do you now watch Better Call Saul? I love Better Call Saul for all the criticism that it gets. Um, some would say slow, and in some ways, yes. But there's got to be a purpose to the slowly growing storyline or the ending of that storyline. And I feel like that storytelling, that producing is so reminiscent of Breaking Bad. It just doesn't have the, the cartel action, only glimpses of that. But I am so hooked onto Better Call Saul. I love the acting. Everybody's perfect for the role. Um, I mean, what, what do you think, honestly? Well, you'll like this story then because oh, here we this go. was uh, 2018, I think. And the visitor's broadcast booth is right next to the Albuquerque Isotopes radio booth and that press box. And there's a big pane of glass in between you. So you can really see everything that's going on in the other team's booth. And it was late in the game. And this woman charges into the Albuquerque broadcast booth, gives their announcer a hug from behind, scares the heck out of him while he's trying to do play-by-play. -play. He's, he's all rattled. 
and she then sits next to him. So she's right next to the window, right next to my booth. And she's looking at me, waving. And I'm like, this woman looks so familiar, but I couldn't place it. It was, uh, she was dressed differently, as it turns out, is was sort of what confused me. But it was the actress who plays Kim Wexler, the wow. attorney on Better Call Saul. Her name's uh, Ray Seahorn. I think her first name is R-H-E. A, but you say Ray, I think. Okay. Um, so I talked to her for 30 seconds and just real appreciative, loved the game. She was there with uh, her husband and a couple of young kids, um, but nothing Hollywood or big time about her, just completely real. And that's actually what's cool for the people that work for the isotopes is there's been a lot of baseball fans on the cast. So when you walk around the press box, you know, you'll see a picture of um, Brian Cranston, the actor who played Walter White, throwing out a first pitch. Oh, or there's, awesome. uh, um, what's Mike Ermentrout's name? Jonathan Banks, that actor. He's got someone in a headlock and they put that picture up on the wall. So yeah. uh, the people that work for the isotopes actually have developed a friendship with Vince Gilligan and the crew. I mean, to the point that there was like a premiere a couple of years ago and a handful of my friends that work for the isotopes actually went to this it was either a Better Call Saul closing party or a premiere party or something, but they're there in Albuquerque hanging out with these actors and actresses. Because um, evidently much of both Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul is shot right there in Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. um, I guess some is in Riverside, California, but you know, a lot of those sites you've seen, and I'm sure you've been to Albuquerque, it, you can tell it's genuine, it's real, they are shooting there. It it, when you're watching the show, it definitely feels like it still has that like, like not Hollywood look to it. It just feels like they they, they shoot everything in home and they, they're very open and very um, like cinematic about those scenes and showing like landmarks of Albuquerque uh, and giving you that feel. And that's being from El Paso, it kind of makes you feel like it's close to home because they'll sometimes mention El Paso or what is. Yeah. And um, of course, with the, the drug cartels in that in that in that show, it's like, OK, we, we can kind of relate to this. Um, plus, it's the desert. It's like, oh, you, you understand this 100 percent. That's still honestly uh, Breaking Bad, still my favorite show of all time and better call. Well, Star, I just love it. I'm glad you reminded me about that, Bob Odenkirk. That was in 2015. And uh, there was a pitcher on the Chihuahuas, Daniel McCutcheon, pitching the major leagues with the Pirates and the Rangers, really a nice guy. And apparently he's at a restaurant one day in Albuquerque, and he sees Bob Odenkirk, the guy that plays Saul, the attorney. Introduces himself. Um, turns out that Odenkirk is a big sports fan, and Odenkirk apparently expressed some sort of interest in going and visiting with the Chihuahuas players that afternoon in the locker room prior to the game. So McCutcheon arrives to the clubhouse and players are saying, well, did you get his number? Well, no, uh, he has mine. And they're saying, he's not coming. Like, <laughs> I mean, this is like when Better Call Saul was new and fresh and booming with popularity. And sure as heck, the next day, I happen to walk by McCutcheon. He's, he's from, a, I think, Central East Texas region. So he's got this thick, southern accent and uh, he turns to me and says he's coming bob odenkirk is coming <laughs> like really it's like he texted me and saul did not come with an entourage or did not come with an agent or anything it was just him and he walked in and 
it was almost like Odenkirk felt embarrassed by the celebrity part of it. He didn't feel totally comfortable posing for pictures, not because he was bothered by it, but he just is so normal, so likable. I think he felt like maybe he was intruding into the player's space, uh -huh. but in actuality, people loved it. And they were talking about Breaking Bad, you know, Breaking Bad ended in 2013, I think. So this is like pretty recently after that massive finale and the popularity of it. So um, it was cool. He told me a fun story that he actually has had this idea in the past of a screenplay surrounding a low-level independent minor league baseball team. And he has ideas for all the conflicts that would take place, uh, players trying to get signed for higher-level teams, some clashes, management trying to do whatever they can to bring in fans and bring in money. And he's saying, I think it'll be a hit, don't you? And what am I going to say? No. Of course. So <laughs> Absolutely it's kind not, of a, Bob. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of made me keep my eye out for that um, if it ever develops for him. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, that's very successful if you really think about it. Like from the past, like Bad News Bears, uh, Major League, which is one of my favorite movie series of all time. Um, it's well, when you have a little bit of humor to a, a game and a sport that we all love and enjoy – you know, it gives you a little break from the seriousness of, of professional baseball or minor league baseball. And it's just like, oh, it's yep. a different side uh, to, to look at. But if it's done right, which he can, I mean, he comes from a great lineage of producers that he's worked with. And he's a very intelligent man himself, great actor. I, yeah. I would be excited to watch that. Yeah, me too. Uh, my favorite sports movie is Bull Durham for oh. the same reason. Just great characters. Um, you know, Bull Durham, have you ever seen it? I have not, actually. Yeah. You're, I mean, that, that's even... I was going to make a joke that you're too young, but the truth is, even I'm too young. That came out in the 1980s <laughs> when I was a toddler. But um, Bull Durham, the movie begins when the season's already underway. The movie ends and the season is still underway. It's not about the wins and the losses. And there's real characters in there. Nuke Lelouch, this prospect finding his way, is given special treatment by the organization. That really ha happens. Um, Susan Sarandon, a woman that is drawn to this baseball world. Crash Davis, a uh, veteran who no longer is useful for a major league organization, but is still being there to, as he says, babysit the big prospect. Anyway, you've never seen it. I won't bore you with it, but uh, just such a, a real movie in the director of that movie, Ron Shelton, played minor league baseball. And that's why it's credited as being so real because he knows the drill. He, he was behind the curtain in real life in baseball. Is there, I mean, when you're so invested in, in baseball, do you feel like there's a movie out there where you're just like, just doesn't do it for me? Yes. I think that when you work at a ballpark every day, you have a more critical eye for that. Um, I mean, I, I watched this years ago. I was in college, but Summer Catch didn't really do it for me. If you remember that one, uh, Freddie Prinze, Jessica Biel. Oh, you know, he goes. Uh, I remember that one. Just little things like he he goes right from the Cape Cod League of Woodbat Summer League to the Philadelphia Phillies, like straight <laughs> to the majors. That's it's how it sounds um, credible to right me, over Tim. The sounds majors. credible yeah. to me. <laughs> That's a prospect. <laughs> So there's things like that, like I think another one is the mechanics and the movement of a player. A trained eye can tell if the person in that uniform has played before. 
uh, Matt Hicks, a former El Paso Diablos broadcaster. In fact, he called games for the same uh, logo that you're wearing on your shirt there. Love um, Hicks told me this story recently on our Chihuahua show that he was with the single A Frederick Keys in um, the early 90s when they taped Major League in Baltimore, uh, a reasonable drive from Frederick. And they actually hired him to be an extra in the movie. So sometimes when Bob Euchre is uh, delivering his one-liners, you can see Hicks's head in the background. But he said that the producers and the director of that major league film were so invested in making it real that what they did was have Hicks also sort of be a consultant where they'd say, okay, in the movie, the Indians are about to go on the road. Uh, where would the press box be? Who would be in it? Mm -hmm. And similarly, the background players in major league Many of them are single-A Frederick Keys players. They oh, actually cool. hired minor league players because they, they wanted it to look as real as possible. Right, yeah, guys that actually play on a daily basis. Yeah, there's want a certain them to smoothness look like to the movements. and Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, that's uh, small little details like that are just always like a f fun little fact that I love when I, I see movies that I'm, I'm really into. When you find those out, you're just like, oh, that just adds on to the love of that movie for sure. Um, how do you feel about Moneyball? Because that is personally my favorite baseball movie. I liked it. Um, some people didn't. And I remember seeing uh, Michael Lewis in an interview, the author of the book. And apparently, when the producers came to him, you know, there was many trials that they tried to make the movie. That, that was years in the making, some ups and downs. And he, he said, how are people going to make my book a movie? He didn't understand that book, which in some ways is numerical and statistical, how that was going to translate into a movie. And, you know, I remember like that first scene where Brad Pitt is in Cleveland discussing a trade with the Indians. And that's where he first meets the Jonah Hill character, Paul DePodesta. Yeah. And that was one thing where I noticed, well, a general manager would not fly all the way to another city in the winter to have an off season trade talk. You can do that on the phone mm -hmm. or you can do that in person at the winter meetings or at some kind of baseball summit. But then I thought that movie, they had to get Brad Pitt's character and Jonah Hill's character. They had to get those two people to meet. They had to give an awakening to Billy Bean about what we can learn on a computer about how to make a baseball team win. So I think that's why they did that. So I think like all movies, they sort of, created their own version of it. Mm -hmm. But I thought that was a, a really good movie. Um, and the A's are just such an interesting organization. They off and on now for 20 years have had some great playoff teams, including this year as we tape this, they have the best record in the American League, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and yet so often they have one of the bottom few payrolls. So I'm sure they're cited all the time from angry fans of team X, Y, and Z, you know, right now the Pittsburgh Pirates are playing badly. And if you're a diehard Pirates fan, well, you can say, well, look at the A's. Yeah. You know, for years, they don't spend much money and they're in the playoffs. So it's really interesting what the A's have done. And that book, like, made Billy Bean such a celebrity. He's probably, you know, he and Theo Epstein are probably the two most well-known heads of baseball operations departments. 
Um, and yet the A's of this era have not won a World Series. So it's like, I don't know, something for you to, for you to think about. Like, let's say over the course of the next 10 years, the A's continue to have playoff teams, you know, in bursts of a couple of years in a row, maybe every other year, but they don't win a World Series. It's like, how will you evaluate Billy Bean's career? To me, I put him right up there at mm -hmm. the top because of what they've done, how much, at least publicly, they changed baseball with the mannerisms that they do to acquire players. But then when you look at things like the Hall of Fame, so often when it comes to managers and executives, it's like, how many championships did you win? Right. And that, that can be said about um, so pretty he, much every sport. Yeah. Which I think is sometimes unfair. Um, right. You know more about football than I do, but like the way people will make cracks about Dan Marino, like because he never won a Super Bowl, he was a great quarterback. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think about that in baseball, like, Buck Walter, Dusty Baker. These are the best, some of the best managers of their era, even if they don't have that World Series ring. Right. And um, I think that's why I resonate with the movie so much is that, um, like you said, it wasn't about their success, whether it was getting that trophy at the end of the year, getting that championship. It was that, that Billy Bean and the A's really changed baseball. It, it may not have seen that way at the moment. Uh, it was that that scene. It was uh, Jonah Hill, and he was uh, showing him tape on, I believe, Kevin Euclid's, like in that little small room. Right, right. And he was like, you know, he he's scared to run past second. He's scared to round second, but he didn't realize that he had a home run. That's you. Oh, that's uh, Jeremy Brown, I think. Is it Jeremy Brown? They're uh, yes, yeah. yes. That you're right. Um, when when he was scared to round second, but he hit a home run, he was basically saying like, "You're scared to to kind of hit around second, but you didn't realize that you've actually hit a home run here, and you've changed baseball forever." Because now we're looking at the analytical portion of it rather than just the payroll. We don't have to have Giambi or Damon on the field paying them millions of dollars. We can get a, a random guy from, from across the street that's working at the grocery store but can throw 95. And he had Tommy John surgery, but we're going to pay him less than a million dollars. And we still win. So you got to realize that there's something special here. And it's the same thing he did with Kevin Euclid. It was like it's very unique kind of batting stance. And it, it may look awkward, but it, it, it does dividends. And if we, we can have them, then same thing. It adds to our formula, essentially. Yeah, that book came out in 2003. And I think so many people looked at it as on-base percentage of walks. And I think you have to look at it a little bit bigger than that. It's not that the A's were acquiring people with high on-base percentages. They were acquiring what was undervalued. And in future years, when people like Euclid became more coveted, teams like the A's all of a sudden, let's say he was one of the top free agents, couldn't afford him. So it's about moving on to the next thing. What mm -hmm. is undervalued? And I think that baseball operations departments have been doing that ever since now. Is it the psychological side of the game? Is it the medical side of the game? Um, I'm, I'm saying this off the top of my head, but there was this study a couple of years ago that Within the last few years, there was a gap of like three seasons in a row where the Tampa Bay Rays had the fewest number of injury list days occupied out of any team in the major leagues. 
I mean, that's not luck. They are doing something medically, strength training, something's going on there that they've been better at injury prevention than other teams. And because of that, they're not spending as much money on players that aren't playing for you, that aren't, you know, in the training room. Yeah, kind of like dead money at um, that point. Right. So it was a, an excellent, influential book. Um, one other thing about the movie, the Jonah Hill character at times is kind of awkward and clumsy. Uh, but the person he plays, Paul DePodesta, used to work for the Padres and would occasionally be around like the Padres winter meetings functions. This is a smooth, cool, likable, very bright guy who was a receiver at Harvard. Um, so I think maybe to make a point in the movie, they sort of made Jonah Hill awkward. But the guy he's playing is not like that. I mean, the yeah. guy he's playing is, I mean, you could bring him to a social gathering and he'd be the most socially talented person there. Mm -hmm. uh, that's actually very similar to... Um to the blind side you remember that movie the football movie yeah with, uh, yeah Bullock? great movie uh, michael orr actually came out and said that that movie is all lies like the the story behind oh. it of him um being you know having troubling times when he was a kid and and being brought in by by that family that's true but the whole idea of him being very shy and being you know a below average student he was actually the the most brightest kid in in the room and he was very social and everybody hmm. loved him just just for being so vibrant and he was like now people look at me different because of that and wow. so that's a, it, it goes along with that of like you your perception of that person if you were to ever meet them is based on that movie and it's actually pretty false right. like in, in that instance um with the a's and that movie like great like you get the good side of that because it's like oh i i thought you were going to be clumsy i thought you were going to be awkward but you're actually very you know a very vibrant person you could say the same thing for michael Orr, but i think that definitely affected his his uh his career for sure yeah i never knew that about him i remember that movie well and probably the filmmaker feels like to a casual fan that might not know these names you have to really amplify what is different about them. Um, and that's too bad they did that, that, that or is brighter than maybe they made him out to be. I, um, as I think back to it, I didn't really remember that part. I do remember him being very quiet. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's also, it's, it's so, must be so hard. Um, most people of course have never had movies done about their lives, but it must be challenging for those people um, I remember when the movie 42 came out and I think 2013, also a fantastic um, movie. It was, it really was. And branch Ricky's grandson also named branch Ricky is the president of the Pacific coast league. So we see him in El Paso a couple of times a year. And I remember interviewing him about that. And he said that when Rachel Robinson, Jackie Robinson's widow gave her blessing and gave her approval of this movie and this script. That really showed the Ricky family, okay, these producers know what they're doing. Um, one of the people behind that movie, Thomas Tull, is a huge baseball fan. I think he owns some old baseball artifacts. He's like a, a collector. He, he's that passionate about the game. So he got the feeling he was going to do it the right way. And apparently the Ricky family felt the same way because... You know, I love baseball history, so I knew about Branch Rickey and I knew about 1947. 
But what was great about that movie is that it introduced probably a whole new generation to how significant that was. Yes. Um, how patient and peaceful Jackie Robinson was in addition to his baseball skills. What an achievement it was. And uh, maybe not achievement, achievement, of course, but even more than that for Branch Rickey. Because remember, in 1947, baseball is by far the most popular sport. This is a huge deal. This is before schools are integrated. This is before Brown versus the Board of Education, that Supreme Court case. This is before um, the military is integrated, I think. So this had effects well beyond sports that Jackie Robinson is playing for a historic team like the Dodgers. So mm -hmm. that's what I liked about that movie. It probably introduced some people to it that um, didn't know a lot about that story. And I mean, I, I think it's one of the most significant sporting events, not just baseball in our history. Because then very shortly thereafter, Larry Doby joins the Indians. Other teams began integrating. It happened so fast that, that Jackie Robinson then had some people right behind him going through their own challenges. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and if you, if you think about it also, what, what, how fortunate baseball was that Robinson played well. You know, it would have been understandable if he was nervous, if he, he was feeling unsafe, if he maybe didn't perform to what he was capable of. But when he played so well, that proved to any doubters that the Negro Leagues had the talent that major league teams do. You know, he, he proved that. Yeah. And uh, I'm one of those, those uh, generational people that knew the significance of Jackie Robinson and growing up seeing, you know, every season, all these teams coming together and wearing the 42 on their jersey. Everyone wore that on Jackie Robinson Day. I knew that this man was significant to baseball. But to see that in action, to kind of tell a story about it, it opened up my eyes to, to a whole new aspect of Jackie Robinson. And it, it was just it was just phenomenally made. Uh, I, I can watch that and, and over and over and still feel those chills, you know, whenever he he plays his first game or when, you know, at the end he, he just has like a good end to the story. You know, he rides off into the sunset. Uh, I, I think that's a great way of showing a new generation. That's why I love like 30 for 30s. Like 30 yeah, for 30s just, just bring you back to those moments, even though I was nowhere near born, you know, um, even close to home, Glory Road. Like I was yeah. nowhere to be heard of in 1966, but hell, uh, I mean, I've heard of Don Haskins. I grew up knowing the name, but how significant was it? You know, what was so important about this? And to tell that story, it's it's just great. And knowing you and how, how like, extremely dedicated you are to baseball history and baseball, um, kind of want to talk about how, like, you started loving the game of baseball when you were a kid, you know, was there a moment or was it just a growing love for it as you grow older uh, that got you to that point? Because you've been announcing for what, 17, 18 years now? 17. That's right. Yeah. Well, and if, if you count this year, 17, unfortunately, we will count games, this but, year, Tim, yeah. we will definitely count it. Cause you're a podcaster now. 
Um, but to have that much love for the game and you could hear it when when you're announcing, that's that's my thing. That's why I resonate with you so much is that that's what I want to do. I want you to love the game with me. I want you to hear it in my voice. That's exactly what I hear. So what exactly was that moment or a time that made you fall in love with the game? There are two things that come to mind. One, I was very young, probably only five years old, and this weekend baseball was on, and there was this Cardinals player running on the field doing backflips. Yes, okay. And that was Ozzie Smith, the Hall of Famer. And even as a kid, I was like, who is that guy doing backflips? And I think about that now because in recent years, there's been a debate about is it unsportsmanlike, is it anti-tradition for players to be celebrating, for them to be tossing their bats, for them to be pumping their fists? And I think that shows that some style, some flair can draw in fans, especially young fans like me. That's one of the things that drew me to baseball. So um, it's funny because of that. I still have never been to St. Louis, but because of that, Ozzie Smith was always my favorite player as a kid. And that's where it started, me watching him do those backflips. So he was always the guy that I would collect his baseball cards. Uh, had a chance to meet him briefly at a winter meetings years ago, which was a great thrill. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, in fact, uh, it was awkward how I met him. He thinks my name is Mike. Okay. I was at this, uh, <laughs> I was at this winter meetings in uh, Orlando, Florida, and there was this luncheon where Ozzie Smith was the guest speaker. And I said to the general manager of our team, I said, I, I've never asked anything like this. I won't ever ask anything like this again. But do you have an extra ticket? Can I get to that luncheon? And I worked out. And afterwards, there's only about 50 people in the room and Ozzie Smith sort of milling around, introducing himself. And Ozzie's wrapping up one conversation here. I am like here. And I see Ozzie move, so I stick out my hand. And I say, Ozzie, I'm Tim Haggerty, and this is Mike. I also introduce our coworker, Mike Callahan. And I said, and this is Mike. But I mistimed it. Ozzie wasn't quite done with that first conversation, <laughs> so he came around late. And all he heard me say was Mike with my arm extended. And he looks at me and says, hi, Mike. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so it was my fault. I sort of jumped the gun. Did you um, at all try to? No, no. To this day, if he ever, for some reason, remembers that he thinks my name is Mike, I, I did not. <laughs> They're going to be like, the voice of Chihuahua is Mike Haggerty. I, I know that guy. I like Mike. Right. <laughs> um, any other you know, kind of memory growing up? Or was from yeah, that point on, was, it was like smooth sailing? I was always drawn to it. The other one was the last day of school in first grade, June 21st, 1989. My mother picked us up from school and said, we're going to the Red Sox game. I lived in Canton, Massachusetts. That's where I grew up. Mm -hmm. It was a suburb of Boston only about 20 minutes, half hour away from Fenway Park. Um, I, of course, was thrilled. I was only seven years old, and I could still remember walking up that ramp at Fenway Park, and just the grass was glowing. It was incredible. It was like a movie. It was like it wasn't real, just what that looked like. And years later, when I discovered Baseball Reference, which we're so lucky to have, it has this archive of just about every major league game that's ever been played. I went on, I found that day, and the Texas pitcher that night in Boston was Bobby Witt. 
who is the only pitcher in Major League history from Canton, Massachusetts, my there hometown. Oh, that's a story. Like it was right meant there. to be. Yeah. And I, I later, he's now an agent. I later got to know Bobby Witt. He represents players. Talked to him a few times. Uh, he actually knows my name. He, he got my name correct. There you I go. I did not fumble that one. It's not Mike. Not Mike. <laughs> um, but yeah, those were the two things. And I was always fascinated by it. Um, as crazy as it sounds, I never, like, was a diehard Red Sox fan. I never was a kid that would, like, weep after a loss or, you know, yell after a loss. I... I was always just captivated by baseball, everything about it, the strategy. Um, you know, I can remember just sitting as a kid at Fenway Park and, and seeing the different bats that they would use, how one guy's was black and the next guy's was a wood color. And even as a kid, I'd wonder, like, what's the difference? Um, and I think that's an important skill still to have is to ask a lot of questions. And my job now, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I've done this 17 years, but I don't think you should walk into the ballpark and think you know everything. Um, and, and when you really have that open mind, there's still things that I learn on a regular basis. I remember this past year, uh, Edwin Rodriguez, El Paso's manager, he used to manage the Marlins. He's the first major league manager ever from Puerto Rico. Very bright, accomplished guy. And I remember early in the season, him telling me a story. He said, you know what I always do? When an opposing batter is receiving a sign from the third base coach, I like to look at his reaction. And he said, this is hard for your audio audience. I'll try to describe it and also uh, look at your video audience here. But hey, um, I'm just okay, going to so say, let's say, for all of those not watching, you're missing out. <laughs> he said to me, let's say, you know, there's a batter. He steps outside the box. He receives a sign, but there's nothing. There's no play. It's a decoy. Nothing's happening. My head does not move. I get right back in the box. He said, now let's say the batter does receive a sign. He does get instructions. Very subtle, but that batter will look down at the ground and then get into his stance. He feels it's human nature that when we are told what to do, when we have to think and process something, we might sort of glance down, think about it, and look up makes sense so something so subtle as like a half second whether a batter glances down or doesn't glance down edwin says most of the time that's right and he can then think about that defensively what does that mean you know he sort of got a tell from the batter and i mean i was just mind blown when he told me this i'd never heard anything like that mm -hmm. and to me that's what i love about baseball and always have there's just this you know, hole that you can keep digging and digging and digging and learn more. I, it's it's the small little fact you find in the movie that adds to to your love right. of the game. It, it's that's that's right. a perfect uh, lineage to it. Um, like that's that's fascinating. I I love that you know that. It's it's a very Tim thing to know. Very Mike thing to know, by the way, too. Um, man, like for. There was one thing I was going to mention, um, but I got I got lost in the thought by telling the story because I was I was just in it. Um, but man, I, I I feel like I should ask you this um, because we're talking about like tradition and we're talking about a game that is beloved for 
hundreds of years and you know the the flashiness and the flair of Ozzy Smith you know some people would criticize that do you have an opinion on the Astros controversy you don't have to answer this if you if you don't want to I know you might get in trouble for this oh no, no. um like for for a man that loves baseball at that level and it is okay with some flair some some flashiness how do you feel about the way that they've handled it, but overall what's been going on in Houston? I remember sitting at Chipotle in the fall when the commissioner's office released its nine-page document on that. I think that Major League Baseball deserves a lot of credit on that because that document names names, tells exactly how it was done. This is not just like a one-paragraph press release. Mm -hmm. I know some people feel that players should have been suspended for that, but the thing is, it, it, it sounds like the commissioner's office needed immunity to get truth, to get that testimony. You had to tell a player, you won't be in trouble for this if you tell me the truth. So I think that's why players were not suspended, but sorry if my camera's shaking. I have a, I have a cat that is saying hello on our interview here. <laughs> No, you're fine. Um, okay. Try to get the cat down. So anyway, what do I think about that? After reading that report, there was one thing that jumped out to me. Remember in September of 2017, the Red Sox got in some hot water regarding Apple Watch's yes. communication with the dugout. Mm -hmm. They had um, some penalties against them. That day, evidently, Major League Baseball sent out the word to all the teams. No more live video, no more communication between the dugout, no more digital anything when it comes to in-game signs. And that's in September of 2017, the year that the Astros are banging trash cans. Like right in the middle of, and, of them doing that. Right. And when I read that, I thought, so... They were warned, don't do this. And from that point forward, still did it. Mm -hmm. That was the part that made me say, guys. Um, and A.J. Hinch used to be a Padres executive. He would come and visit the Padres AAA team. This is a smart, nice guy. Was always great to me. Calls you by your name. Has uh, two young daughters and I'm sure is a very nice, you know, family guy. Um, but I think that's where Hinch made a mistake was that isn't that the point when this Red Sox thing is happening that you call a team meeting and say, guys, no more of this monitor, no more of this trash can. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that was kind of the one where I see some people say, well, everybody's doing it. I'm not sure if after, I, I bet that Red Sox thing and that warning did scare a lot of teams away if they were sort of bending any rules, but um, it's hard. It's, uh, you know, and then when that happens, it's funny thinking about baseball history. People will instantly bring up Pete Rose. That has nothing to do with anything, but that happened a lot. People say it's like one baseball controversy always brings them back to other ones. Uh, Pete Rose or Shoeless Joe Jackson or steroids. Well, those are four different stories. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Um, so, like, in general, how do you feel about, like, uh, sign stealing? Because uh, a person who has been in the sport for that long, it, that, that is an argument, is that it, everybody does it. Everybody does it to some degree. Um, are you okay with the idea of sign stealing, or are, are you just so against it and have no kind of um, agreement to it in the sport? The consensus is out of people I've interviewed both before the Astros incident and after is that when you do something with your eyes, that's fine. That's cool. That's gamesmanship. But when you start involving live cameras, that's cheating. Okay. Which I so would if agree you're the with. base runner at second base and the opposing team is not being careful with their sides. And you and I sort of have this plan that, okay, I'm going to touch my helmet. If a curveball is coming, that's cool. That seems to be the consensus of people I've spoken to. And that makes sense because you're the base runner. You're just using your own eyes and your own intelligence to perceive things. Um, whereas in the case of something like cameras and, you know, cueing the batter in a way like a, a trash can noise, the other team is not able to do that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and I think that, Go ahead. It's, it's people might be mad at me for saying this because they might think I'm letting people off the hook, but it's like, um, don't judge the entire organization on some illegalities that they were caught doing. Like, it's like a, a friend of a friend, the Astros have a great dedicated community relations department. Um, the Astros did a lot of emotional healing that I thought was real after Hurricane Harvey. Not necessarily with wins, but I mean like in the community donations that, you know, I don't want to get into Twitter handles and who was writing this, but it was like, don't discard that. Um, yes, there's definitely, um, you know, a cloud around their 2017 World Series. But when people sort of take the whole organization and punch them, mm-hmm. you know, let's be more specific than that. Yeah. I, so I, I'm, a, I'm right there with you as far as, like, if it's a base runner recognizes a, a sign and gives it to his batter, I'm all for that because that's great awareness. It's probably been in the game for as long as we can remember. But when you start adding kind of instruments and and, uh, and devices, then that's another issue. Um, I'd say more of it is the, the taste, like the bad taste they left in everybody's mouths when they came back for spring training and went up for their press conference. Jose Altuve, uh, Carlos Correa, like they all came up and they said, we're just going to focus on this season. And... That's probably what everybody told them to do. I, I completely understand that aspect. But the, w- there was never a sense of a, a sincere apology, you know, to the sport. It's not just to to other teams who work day in and day out to get that championship. And, you know, let's say like the Yankees that year that had a very good chance of winning. They also, I think there was some allegations toward the, the Yankees that year as well or, or another season of sign stealing. Um, but that, that's for another story. But, like, 
for Aaron Judge to have that phenomenal season, that MVP race with him and Jose Altuve was amazing to watch. You know, you're not just trying to apologize to that, but you're also apologizing to fans that, you know, have dedicated their lives to the sport and to the game of baseball. Like, it is a very respectable sport, and they take they take everything on the chin. Like, they, they will get offended if you are trying to ruin the sport. So the, the fact that there's no sincere apology to that, I think that's where I have a problem with it. And, you know, I, I don't really think that that, 2017 season and that championship should be recognized but that's just my opinion that's why I, I like to ask you because that is a a a true opinion but it also a respectable one for someone that has been around the sport for that long I think you touched on a point that people are forgiving I think sports fans when they get a real apology I mean if it can be emotional they are forgiving. And I think there is a glowing example of that in baseball, Alex Rodriguez. Yep. Yeah. As recently as 2013, this guy at the time had the longest steroid suspension, longest PED suspension that baseball had issued. He was suing everybody. I mean, he was suing trainers, doctors. I think he went after his own union. He was, um, you know, what's that phrase? Persona non grata. He was like, there's a red circle with a line through it and A-Rod's picture in it for a while in baseball. Yep, yeah. Now, he's in the mix to potentially join an ownership group for the New York Mets. He's bidding on the Mets. He's an analyst that's featured on the national broadcast every week. He's on commercials. I see him on CNBC. He's like been on Shark Tank. Um, and I once saw a tweet from a member of Sabre, of the Society for American Baseball Research, and he brought up an interesting question. He said, well, what's the difference in people's viewpoints between Alex Rodriguez and Barry Bonds? Why have we grown to accept one of them, maybe even like one of them, A-Rod, mm -hmm. but we're still upset with the other guy, Barry Bonds? One of the reasons, I think, one of the things that came to mind for me is that Alex Rodriguez has admitted guilt. Um, Barry Bonds, personal trainer, went to jail, and you know Barry got into some perjury issues. But that's the thing: we never have had Barry Bonds on TV apologizing, which I think kind of goes to what you're saying. I wonder if that's the reason. I think you know there's a lot of examples of that in sports: people that make a mistake but with a true apology um we forgive them we give them another chance yeah i mean i mean mark mcguire st louis cardinals exactly he later became a coach for teams including the padres which i know barry bonds became a hitting coach as well mm -hmm. and um you know i'm not saying i have a, a dislike for barry bonds he was an incredible player i think he's a smart person he was a talent that you're talking about one of the five most talented players who's ever been. But there was a significant body change there that led to a lot more power that, you know, even though he's never admitted it, we can it's very noticeable. We can, yeah, we can make some um, observations and while we can't prove it, we can certainly wonder. So um, it's a tough one. It, it's uh 
you know, I, I think the value of, of a true, real apology. It goes a long way for sure. Yeah. And, and for you to bring up Barry Bonds, that is a perfect example of someone that is still has a, a very bad taste in their mouths when it, they bring it up and the home run record. You know, you just can't say he is the true champion without being like, yeah, but he also gained like 30 pounds of muscle and he looked like a different person from the Pittsburgh Pirates to the San Francisco Giants. Like that's a whole different yeah. player in my opinion. And uh, I mean, I, I, I remember watching him getting the record. You know, I, I came home from a vacation one night and I was like, I need to watch a Giants game. It's nationally televised. Like I need to watch it. I was probably eight or nine years old. And I, I remember it watching. It was August of 07, so however old you were then. I was, I was nine years old, yeah. Wow, damn. Um, yeah, but I think, I think you make a very good point, and, you know, I value your opinion. So uh, thank you for at least answering that question. I know it may, it may not be fond to everybody, especially because you brought up the documents, and everyone's going to be like, no, you should suspend them. You should penalize them and all that, but you're – you, you looked at both sides, and I appreciate that. Now, Tim, we are wrapping up. We are short on time because I know you're a busy man, of course. <laughs> so I just want to ask you a few more questions, kind of like a lightning round. First question, who, in your opinion, has been kind of that, that wow player you've seen ever since you've joined – uh, the Padres organization, or really you can shorten that up to, to the Chihuahuas history. Like who has, have you seen and been like, that man is going to be a star one day. Yeah. Uh, we've been lucky in El Paso, some uh, terrific rosters. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, the star players have been hitters. Uh, the Chihuahuas in their existence have always had one of the best run totals and home run totals in the Pacific Coast League. There haven't been as many pitchers, but one of them, then Nelson Lamette in 2017, pitched great for the Chihuahuas. And I thought this is going to be a guy who's in a major league rotation for a while. Unfortunately, in 2018, he had to have Tommy John surgery. Mm -hmm. uh, came back last year, but this year has been outstanding. As we record this, he... I think has been, it's safe to say, the best Padres starting pitcher. And the Padres are a team that's in the playoff mix. They're playing great. They're yes. 18 and 12 as we speak. So um, he was one that came to mind. There have been so many hitters. Uh, Ty France won league MVP last year, had a great season. Hunter Renfro was such a gifted player. He would hit the ball so far. He has the best in-person arm I've ever seen. And in the major leagues now, the statistics back that up. He's with the Tampa Bay Rays, and his arm is incredible. Um, I saw him throw a ball in El Paso from the left field warning track to the catcher on a fly. Wow. I mean, the catcher didn't have to move, didn't have to shuffle over. It was unbelievable. And you think if you stay on the warning track, that doesn't give you as much real estate to do a big crow hop. So that was really his arm strength, and you know, less so that he had a running start. Mm -hmm. um, you said in my time in the Padres organization, I've answered this question once before and used this name and uh, two different people online got mad at me that were listening in San Diego. <laughs> so if you're listening in San Diego, I apologize. But in 2011, there was a 21-year-old kid that the Padres had just gotten in a trade 
that ripped through the Pacific Coast League, went up and made his major league debut with the Padres that year, Anthony Rizzo. Wow. It was unbelievable that year. He, there were times that Rizzo in AAA was the youngest and best player on the field. Um, so he's right there as well, even though he has not made his mark in the majors with the Padres, to watch him in AAA was really something. Um, you know, the Padres then traded him after the 2011 season to the Chicago Cubs for Andrew Kashner, who, by the way, became a starting pitcher for them for a while. Um, you know, of course, Rizzo has had a better career, but it's not as if the Padres gave him up for nothing. They got some innings out of Kashner and um, starting pitchers in the major leagues that stay in your rotation for five years or so don't grow on trees. So, but uh, yeah, those are the names that come to mind. Um, Austin Hedges and Rocky Gale, great defensive catchers that Chihuahuas have had. I remember that's probably around the era that you were working games that you were those guys. There was a lot of Rocky Gale highlights that we would show. Yes. (laughs) Um, But we've been lucky in El Paso. The team in six seasons has never had a losing season Four playoff appearances. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a, a championship ring on that shelf behind me, which, of course, I uh, did nothing to contribute to any of the wins. But that's <laughs> I, uh, I think you did. I think you did. A very nice tradition. They they included me in that as well. So I've been really lucky uh, to call a lot of wins in El Paso, and that's a credit to the Padres. They've supplied El Paso with some excellent, talented players over the years. Mm-hmm. That's not to say it's you know not fun if you cover a losing team. I think it's still a thrill to go to the ballpark and announce the games, even if they're not consequential in the standings. But um, it does make it a lot of fun in August when you know, you're know you tracking other games, seeing who's winning, counting down magic numbers. It's been fun. Um, you know, I went 12 years without seeing a minor league playoff game of any kind. And then got to call playoffs four years in a row, about 25 games. So Yeah. Um, and um, yeah. as we wrap it up, that you actually bring up the one story I haven't brought up and I wanted to. Um, you know, I, I've – even though there was a rocky start with the Chihuahuas, in my opinion, with the name, it was, it was a little slowly but surely embracing that name for me. Uh, once I did – and seeing the stadium being built, just the innovation of complementing different major league ballparks together, including Petco Park, uh, that that Southwest University Park is just a beautifully done, well-ran stadium. And for you to announce that and to have the background, to have the noise of the crowd in the background always added a little element to, to the highlights. Um, but I will say that the one story that I forgot to mention was the night that the El Paso Chihuahuas won that championship in OKC because I was there. I remember that. And I remember talking to you that week and saying, if, there, if there's any possibility, uh, you can hook it up for Bubba Lutz and some friends. Um, I, was at, I, I was at UNT at the time living in the dorms. Um, but I asked two of my friends, I was like, Hey, you want to go see the Chihuahuas? Like they're playing in their first championship game. And, um, we, we all agreed that was the weekend that Oklahoma was playing Ohio state. 
So the traffic heading over to OKC, which was about a three to four hour drive, was absolutely terrible. I was at a stalemate on the highway halfway through, and I, we were listening to the game on the way over. And when we got there, one of the regrets was I didn't get to see you. I really wanted to get in the booth and just uh, see you do work and, and get to say hi. But I remember that moment when the Chihuahuas won. Guys are, are rushing the, the field. I look over to my left because I was on, on the first base side. And I look over and I can see you in the booth. And I see you excited. I see you just you know, just in the mic, just making the call that I would hear later on. And I said, that, that's, that's a moment that I will never forget. Because OKC has a beautiful stadium. It, was, it wasn't packed, but I felt that the El Paso Chihuahuas fans that were there on the first base side, including myself, were louder than the OKC fans. So you got to see the embrace and the celebration of this El Paso community that has only had this team for only a couple of years at that point. And then to look over and see you, instead of being in the booth, felt weird, but um, to, to see that moment with all of you guys, with a great team, great announcer, I was, I mean, I felt really proud to be from El Paso, and I was, I was really happy that night. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Uh, great memories. I, I do remember that. I remember you being there, and I remember uh, seeing a text from you in the middle of the night saying you were a part of history and, and thanking me for the tickets. Uh, so, yeah, I remember that well. And, and you're right about the noise, because if you listen to that call – there is some fan excitement in the background, which when that's been the one time in my career, I've been lucky enough to call it championship. And there is a difference on a championship call, whether it's the home team or the road team. And that difference is the massive crowd noise. Mm -hmm. But that night in Oklahoma city, it was raining. There was a rain delay that night. Of course, uh, both Oklahoma and Oklahoma state football had home games. That was Saturday night. Um, that was the night here locally that, UTEP played Army at the Sun Bowl. So because of that, um, when you combine the rain and the two college football teams that are so popular in the state having home games, understandably, the, the sports attention was really divided in Oklahoma mm -hmm. City that night. And it, normally they have big crowds there, but by the time the 11th inning ended that night, it wasn't a big crowd. So I was wondering that, you know, if the Chihuahuas win this, what is this going to sound like in the background? But uh, you, your friends, and I can picture that pocket of fans behind the first base dugout. I think there was um, some groups of people that had driven up from El Paso. I can picture at least uh, one family that did. Uh, there were some Chihuahuas front office members there. That's really cool that it did provide some positive excitement on that ground ball to third, throw to first, championship has been won. Um, and you had that fan reaction to back that up. Yeah. I, I mean, thinking about it still, I, I have the pictures of it because it, it, it was just a beautiful little panoramic that I have uh, of that of that night. I, I did forget that it rained, but of course I'm there, so of course there's a rain delay. Um, but, man, I, I, I think that that's a good way to, to cap off this episode. So, Tim, thank you so much. I really do appreciate you coming on and uh, being a part of my podcast. I don't think this will be the last time that we'll have you on. I hope not. Yeah, happy to do it again sometime, Bubba. Uh, good to see you're doing well. And 
I'll listen. I'll start listening to your podcast. Uh, I have no doubt it's good, so happy to be part of it. Thank you so much. The the mo- One of the most humble, respectable, and, and kindest human beings that I've ever met in my life. Uh, great announcer, but great person. Uh, I wish nothing but the best for you and your family. Hope Carson's doing well. Is, is he in baseball yet? No, at this point, his extracurricular activity is taekwondo, so... No four-year-olds mess with him. Well, I mean, I need to see Tim. Maybe someday. Uh, I need to. I need an alter ego of of a guy named Mike doing Taekwondo, and that will be you <laughs> earning a black belt. That's what I need to see next time we're on the podcast. Okay. Deal. <laughs> um, thank you so much, everybody. Uh, go follow Tim on Twitter. I think it's just at Tim Hart Haggerty. Yes. It's T.D. Haggerty. T.D. Haggerty. For all the latest on the Chihuahuas, um, you want to plug your, your new Chihuahua show? Yes. On uh, Thursdays at 4 o'clock Mountain, we have Chihuahuas Chatter. We have a weekly guest. Uh, it's been a you know, sort of a replacement that we don't have any game broadcast, but it's been fun. Talk baseball. Uh, we bring back former players. So thanks for mentioning that, and you can catch some archived episodes on the Chihuahuas website. Beautiful. I am definitely going to check that out, and I can't wait for Chihuahua's baseball to be back um, next season, hopefully next season, uh, just yes. to hear you on the call. Uh, thank you again. Uh, we, will, we will do this again, but for everybody that is watching and listening, go and subscribe, follow the podcast, be a part of the Bubba Bunch. I know Tim's a part of the Bubba Bunch now, uh, and we will see you next time. On the Bubble Up Sports Podcast. And which team always make you go right way? Yeah, hold on. Tell me who's your top five quarterbacks right now, dead or alive, huh? And how much do you care about a ring if the best player got carried by the team? Mm. Now, would you lose if it been a better draft pick? And do you cuss when your team bit the ass kick? Now, do you keep it classy or